pass this time to Asha for today's uh, scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participations in the Spirit, any affections and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. May God bless the reading of Um, it's a pleasure and a, a privilege to be with uh, you all today, even though it's uh, over Zoom. Um, I still remember um, Pastor Micah and Pastor Wong, they were, they were quite instrumental in my, my transition, uh, my journey from going uh, into full-time. I, I spoke to them at length. Uh, uh, I've been meeting uh, Sandy as well uh, on, on Tuesday. So I feel like, you know, there's some people I already know and I, I hope I could uh, get to know more of you all uh, in, in due time. So um, today, the text is going to be Romans 15, uh, verse 1 to one through 13. Um, and the, the thing about jumping into Romans at this point um, of the letter is that um, it may sound a bit disjointed from the rest of Romans. Um, I think if I, if I look at my own experience of reading Romans, um, I tend to treat it as, uh, as, a, as a document with different um, segments, right? So if I need to know about justification by faith, uh, I, I look at chapter 1 to 4. If I need to know what happens after that, right? The, the blessings, the freedom from the law, uh, the, the, the salvation of the entire cosmos, the universe, I look at chapter 5 to 8. Uh, if, if somebody talks to me about, you know, what's happening about the war in Israel and all, then we all look at 9 to 11. And then if you need to look at uh, uh, how to obey your authorities or should we go against them, you look at 13. And then uh, how should we disagree with Christians? You look at Romans 14 and 15, right? So, uh, so what I want to do is actually remind uh, all of us that um, as we look through Romans, right, it's actually a letter, right? There is one running, there's one theme that runs through the entire letter. Um, and, that, and that is the gospel, right? So Paul, uh, at this point in time, he's, he's about to... Um, embark on this next leg in his journey, right? He's going to go to Spain. Um, and, and he needs a, a, a sort of like a base, a, a, a forward operating base, so to speak, a launch pad uh, between Jerusalem and Spain. So he's looking at the church in Rome to support him. So what he does in this letter is um, he writes about the gospel that he preaches, right? In, in, in the first um, part, 
in chapters 1 to uh, 11, right? So he's, he's convincing them that, look, I'm preaching the real deal. Eh? The, the gospel makes sense. The gospel flows from, uh, from his heart and then it's true, right? And then after he has convinced them and he has shown them um, his apostolic authority in explaining the gospel, um, he, then, he then uses the opportunity to, to tackle some of the issues that are happening in the church. Right. And one of the main issues um, in this church uh, was that there was an emergence of two groups of people. Um, and Paul refers to them as the strong um, and the weak. Okay, So in the, the strong and the weak I mentioned in chapter 14, the strong are, are basically uh, some of the uh, Gentile majority Christians uh, who felt that, you know, since I'm a Christian now, my faith is very strong, my conscience is clear, you know, I can just eat whatever I want, right? It's primarily about food and drink in chapter 14 and 15. So because they were eating whatever they want, uh, the weaker Christians, those who came from a Jewish background, they were majority Jews, um, they, they, they didn't have the faith um, that the Gentile Christians had. So, they, so their conscience wasn't clear, right? And they felt, uh, and they, and they felt like uh, these guys, they were going overboard. They were too much. So in, in chapter 14, you see, um, the strong actually despising the weaker ones because they think that um, they don't understand freedom. And the weaker ones uh, end up judging the strong. Right? So it's a very um, ugly situation lah, uh, in the church at that point in time. So um, Paul, right, um, he has an opinion on this and we, and we, and I'll go back, you know, this, I'll go back to chapter 14 every now and then, because, you know, 14 and 15, uh, they're basically one unit like, up to 15 verse 13. Uh, a lot of people say that uh, 15 verse 13 is probably the, the end to Paul's overall argument uh, running from the start of Romans. Right. But within this section, um, Paul ha has an opinion about this situation. He writes in uh, chapter 14, verse 14, that he himself is fully convinced, is convinced and fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. So basically, Paul is saying, it's just wall up, Manila. It's not really a problem if you feel that uh, your conscience is clear uh, and your faith is strong and it allows you to eat it. But he doesn't do that, you know, he doesn't hammer the weak Christians in chapter 14. He clarifies the debate by explaining that it's not once that it's one's conscience that ultimately determines whether eating something is sinful or not. So if you can eat with a clear conscience, uh, then good for you. Uh, chapter 14, verse 22, he says, uh, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But if one does not have a strong enough faith, and because of that, he does not have a clear conscience or has doubts about what he eats, that person is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So uh, Paul affirms uh, what the strong believe in. And in fact, if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, right, he even identifies with them. You know, um, Even though he identifies with the strong group, uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, lah, but if the Apostle Paul agrees with my conviction on a controversial topic, I'll be, I'll be really happy, right? But that's not the case here, you know. He, you will see that the strong and not the weak are the ones who are going to have to sacrifice something in order to solve this issue. 
right? Paul doesn't hammer the weak, you know, he addresses the strong. Although he affirms their convictions, he has something to say to the strong because they are the ones who are going to have to do something about it. So ex after explaining how um, the strong Christians were affecting the consciences of those who were uh, weak by eating non-kosher food, uh, Paul then provides the solution um, to the issue. Right? He teaches that the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And he gives um, three reasons why, uh, why they should do that. And, and, and those three reasons are how I've sort of uh, arranged my uh, sermon today. So the reasons are love, first one, the gospel, second, and the kingdom of Christ. Right. So why should the strong bear the failings of the weak? Because of love, because of the gospel, and because of the kingdom. So at the beginning of chapter, um, at the beginning of the chapter, in, in verse one itself, uh, Paul opens by saying, "We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Um, let each of us please his neighbor for his own, for his good." To build him up. All right, so there are, there are a few things to note in this opening verse. Firstly, is that um, the word bear can actually mean two things, one of two things. It can mean either you know you passively tolerate someone, you know, you leave them at arm's length and then you maintain the status quo. Um, or as I think is the case um, here, it carries a more, it can carry a more active and deliberate meaning. So if you look at the context, right, um, it seems that Paul is saying that we have an obligation or a duty um, to bear with the failings of the weak um, instead of pleasing ourselves and having things our own way. In the Roman church, uh, for the stronger Christians especially, um, pleasing ourselves basically means you know, eating as much siu yo, cha siu or pork curry that you can get your hands on. Uh, but doing, and, and on top of that, right, not just eating what you want to eat, but doing it in a proud way because you are celebrating the freedom in Christ that you have and you, and you don't care, you know, regardless of how others around you feel about it. So Paul is um, saying that that's not what the stronger Christians should be doing. Those who have a strong faith ought to please their neighbours instead of themselves for the good of their neighbours. Now, now, for their good can mean a lot of things, right? Um, and, and some things that we think are good are actually bad. If you think about uh, spoiling children, for example, too much of a good thing sometimes becomes a, a bad thing. So Paul stresses that the good he's talking about is the building up of the weaker Christians. So by, by picking their battles, right, the stronger Christians, by picking their battles, by choosing not to eat food that would harm the conscience of those who are not ready to eat, um, the stronger Christians are allowing the weaker Christians to practice their faith in peace. Uh, and this will hopefully grant more opportunities for them to grow, right? And come to a better understanding of the freedom that the gospel provides and ultimately liberates their conscience. Right? So, so there is a, there's an end goal here, you know, we are, we are bearing uh, with the young, with the weaker Christians, in order that their faith may grow, that their understanding may grow, that they, they may feel more confident in the gospel, and their conscience are free, uh, are freer as a result. So, chapter fourteen 
verse 15. Again, I'll go back to 14 right now and then shed some light on this um, conflict. So Paul explains that at the heart of the problem in verse 15 is actually an absence of love. So in verse 15, it says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Love is the reason and the motivation for why the strong ought to bear with those who are weak in the faith. John Stott, uh, in his commentary on these two chapters, he writes that in fundamentals then, faith is primary. We may not appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential faith. In non-fundamentals, however, love is primary. And we may not appeal to zeal for the faith as an excuse for failures in love. So in, in other words, when it comes to fundamental truth, right, truth that will affect um, the gospel message, then yes, we must um, stand firm. We must be uncompromising. But when it comes to non-fundamental issues where sincere Christians disagree, you know, what comes to my mind is things like, you know, the age of the earth, uh, whether we're living in the end times, the nature of spiritual gifts, our worship styles and so on. Our zeal over these issues, our passion over these issues cannot be greater than the love we have for the brothers and sisters who disagree with us. One of my um, university friends once told me how she felt that her sister, uh, who had just become a Christian, was starting to behave in a, a, a really weird way whenever the family ate together. So, so this, Christi this Christian uh, sister of my friend, she would, she would always ask exactly where the food came from. You know, was it offered to idols? Uh, where do you buy it from? Did the person who sell it to you offer it to idols? You know, she tried to track the supply chain all the way to the source. <laughs> uh, and, and she would only eat uh, what was being offered, uh, what had not been offered uh, to the idols as far as she can ascertain. Um, so back then, I was a lot younger and I, and I thought I had understood Paul very well. And, and in my pride and ignorance, I told this friend that, you know, Christians, are, they, they don't believe that the idols are real anyway. So the food remains food, right? no matter where you put it. You know, you can put it anywhere. It's, it's still food. Uh, so by right, your sisters, you just eat. Yeah, while up near. I don't know what's wrong with her. So in my pride, right, I didn't realize that not only had I insulted someone's religion um, and family tradition, um, I had put her sister in a very difficult position as well. I didn't realize that what I say would harm this Christian sister's conscience if my friend had brought up what I said about the food in front of her family. What I probably should have done was show some empathy and say that it was a conscious issue. Uh, while I have my own convictions, it's entirely up to the individual Christian to decide. Um, an overflowing love for the weaker Christian, rather than an overbearing desire to flaunt my own freedom, um, should have been at the heart of my convictions. So I just want to put this question to you today. Is there a weaker brother or sister in your life right now? Um, one who's struggling and doesn't have a faith 
strong enough to enjoy certain freedoms with a clear conscience. Uh, I think it's interesting that in, in Malaysia, I think in, in many uh, communities in Malaysia, we have almost a one-to-one -one comparison with the situation that's happening in Romans when it comes to food um, offered to idols. Um, so is there someone who's weaker and whose conscience isn't clear when it comes to these things in your life right now? Instead of writing them off or judging them as inadequate or excluding them from you know, our committees or, mini or ministries, um, check to see if you... Uh, if you're convinced, even if you're convinced and you have the right convictions, uh, check to see if you have the desire to build that weaker brother or sister's faith um, and you're prepared to limit your own freedoms for their good. Our love. So now Paul moves into uh, another important reason, right? Building upon um, love that was mentioned in chapter 14. Um, why, and, and he explains further why the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And, and, and that is that in these few short verses, Paul has explained the grand um, overarching story of the gospel um, that points to God's eternal plan of redemption that includes human beings from every nation, tribe, and tongue. In other words, the gospel is huge, right? The gospel's scope and breadth and length across history um, is wide and, and amazing. And that is why we need to be able to bear with those uh, who are weak. I'll explain the connection um, shortly. So um, to fulfill this grand plan of redemption, Christ, right? The strongest, most exalted, most glorious, most powerful king of the universe um, chose not to please himself and have his own way, but willingly lowered himself, was born into this fallen world, became a servant to the Jews and was obedient to the law's demand and was obedient to God's will to the point of death. Like we read in the scripture reading just now, even death on a cross. To say that Christ did not please himself, right, is probably the greatest understatement in all recorded literature. Christ's sacrificial casting aside of his immense privileges was done so that both strong Gentiles and weak Jews can be part of a redeemed covenant community that glorifies God through the cross in spite of their differences. So there's a tendency for us sometimes, I think, um, to limit the gospel to just uh, what you need to know in order to be safe. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a ticket to heaven like that. What, what is the bare minimum I need to know in order to go to heaven? But Paul doesn't limit the gospel to personal salvation. In, in verses 9 to 12, he points out four instances where the Gentiles, right, those who are outside of God's covenant, um, are shown to be worshipping, rejoicing, and under God's rule in the Old Testament. So for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only important vertically, right? That means it, it doesn't just restore our relationship with God, but it's also important horizontally. Um, it affects how we see and relate to each other. Um, the gospel reconciles communities that were at odds with each other. 
And it changes the way we view fellow believers who come from different backgrounds. In the grand message of the gospel, we are all now part of the same covenant community of diverse believers Christ has redeemed. And our focus is no longer on how strong we are right, compared to others, but our focus is now on praising and glorifying God for His mercy in bringing us together in the first place. So notice what Paul is doing here. Um, he's situating the current conflict inside the Roman church within God's grand plan of redemption to give a new perspective to the two conflicting groups in the church. The Gentiles had no reason to despise the Jews because, um, because of Israel's priority in God's plan of redemption. So Christ became a servant of the Jews because the promises made to them were important and God was faithful to that covenant. But the Jews also had no right to judge the Gentiles as the Gentiles had now been grafted into the same covenant community, the commonwealth of Israel through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection of the cross. So because of this overarching, uh, overarching message of God's redemption and the new um, equal status that the redeemed Jews and Gentiles have, um, Paul can truly instruct both parties um, to say to each other, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I'm always very uh, amazed at the different kinds of uh, people that can be found in uh, churches. You have uh, young children, you have teenagers, you have college students, uh, you have fresh graduates, you have people who work in the daytime, people who work at night, uh, people who work both day and night, people who are retired, people from other countries, people who are rejoicing, people who are hurting and suffering, people struggling in their faith, people who are overcome by God's grace. We're all part of this glorious new covenant community that God has redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I once heard a, a missionary talk about his experience of planting a church and watching it grow. Uh, and he summarized his experience as uh, in four words, uh, more people, more problems. I, I suspect that many of us can empathize with that very faithful, but uh, over time has become a bit weary um, person. But after reflecting on the global, um, inclusive, um, wide-ranging implications of the gospel, um, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised when God sends all sorts of people into our churches um, because that's re that, that, that really is the nature of the gospel. Maybe instead of saying more people, more problems, uh, as we are moved by God's grace and we see with uh, greater clarity the, the global uh, nature of the gospel um, and through that we become more and more prepared to love those who are weaker. Um, we can say, more people, more praise. More people, more peace. More people, more joy. More people, more glory for God. The net of the gospel is a wide one and it catches all kinds of people. Um, some who still carry baggage from the time before they became a Christian. Um, and they will struggle uh, while their faith is being built up. 
but Christ has accepted that fellow weaker brother or sister of yours, and it is our obligation to welcome him or her as Christ has welcomed us. If that weaker brother is welcome in God's eyes, then who are we to push him or her away? Now, it doesn't mean that all um, disagreements will magically disappear. Um, there will always be different opinions and convictions in the church. Um, in the building project, for example, we, that's where I normally start to see a lot of strong opinions come out. Uh, you got some who will say that, you know, uh, a church architecture or a certain way of designing the interior needs to be done in order for ministry to be effective, in order for us to serve God better. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have those people who say, just give us an empty warehouse, put some cardboard on the floor, and we'll show you how to worship like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and you can see how that, that can be a problem. Uh, but in Romans 15 verse 5, uh, Paul's prayer is that God may give the Christians in Rome the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and with one voice, they may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having the same attitude of mind in the church doesn't mean that we agree to every single thing, but that we agree on the one thing that truly matters, constantly glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, I'd like to invite you today to take the apostles' exhortation seriously, to understand that the gospel is designed from eternity past to reconcile um, different groups of people for the common purpose of glorifying God. And when we understand that, then our desire to worship and praise and glorify God as one body will overshadow every selfish desire to assert our own freedoms. Uh, and we'll be able to fully understand what Paul um, is praying for at the end of chapter 15. Paul ends the entire section in verse 13, uh, in, in chapter 15, verse 13, with uh, something that uh, commentators have called a prayer wish, right? It's a prayer and a, and a wish, a statement of the desire, the heart uh, for the Christians in Rome. So he prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul repeats um, some of the words we find in chapter 14, verse 17, where he explains that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So key words like peace and joy are repeated um, in this prayer wish um, for, as a reminder to the Roman Christians of their citizenship in God's heavenly kingdom. The kingdom will be fully revealed to us in the new creation where we'll have true everlasting joy and peace, but this kingdom also exists now. Um, it, it is inaugurated or it has been um, started or it's began, it began uh, following the victorious resurrection of Christ. We already have a glimpse of the coming eternal kingdom um, in the way it is manifested right now in God's redeemed community. So this chosen people, this royal priesthood, and this holy nation of Christ is a reflection of that eternal kingdom that we will one day see when it's revealed. So since we are members of this kingdom then, brothers and sisters, there's no place then for an over-enthusiastic expression of personal freedoms at the expense of our fellow weaker 
Christians. All despising and judging must be replaced with peace and joy that follows united worship of the merciful, true God. In short, we ought to bear the failings of the weak because we have been redeemed from our old way of life that led to destruction. And now we are found within the kingdom of Christ where peace and joy and hope that overflows with the power of the Holy Spirit is present. This should rewire our attitudes and challenge any of us that feel a sense of superiority when we consider our faith and conscience to be stronger than those around us. It's important to remember that one of the reasons Paul wrote, Paul wrote Romans um, was like, like how I mentioned earlier, was to assure the Roman Christians that his gospel preaching was sound uh, and that he was hoping that they could support his upcoming journey to Spain. So Paul was looking for partner churches that would serve um, as, a, as a launch pad for his next stage in, the, in his missionary endeavors. Um, so a church, you imagine, that was divided would not be able to focus their attention and resources on external missions. They would be too inward looking to think about the needs that exist beyond their church walls. But a church that is convinced about the gospel knows how to build up its weakest members and understands the global, universal nature of the gospel. Um, it's defined by the kingdom of Christ and is united in worship. Now that, that is an effective base for global missions. So the church, it, missional impact, right, is not going to be seen in its support of overseas missionaries. You know, It will be seen internally as well because when, when people enter the church, they're going to see a uni united, mutually, um, uh, you, uh, you're going to see a united, mutually respecting, worshipful community, um, and they can't help but see the gospel at work. So Sam uh, Chan, uh, as he calls himself, uh, is an evangelist based in Sydney, Australia. Um, he, he's, an, he's passionate about uh, evangelizing, right? And, and he describes uh, a problem uh, that, that we face in modern society today. Um, more than ever, we, we tend to cluster ourselves, right? We tend to group ourselves um, into tight groups where it shields us from any different uh, belief and uh, competing beliefs and convictions. So, so the, and, and this, and the world, modern society as we know it, is made up of so many tightly bound um, uh, mini universes, you know. Um, and this doesn't, uh, and this applies to Christians as well. So we Christians, right, we have our own mini subculture and that is separate from the world at large and, and we don't really engage with other um, spheres um, out there. So this Sam Chan, he, he recommends that Christians, uh, we need to actively find ways to merge our worlds uh, with the world of the unbeliever. And because when we, when we don't do that, right, all they see are, are caricatures, right, are, are just uh, false impressions of Christians they get from people within their group. So Christians, um, we need to start inviting people into our communities and see for themselves how Christian community looks like from the inside. Um, the way we treat others, the way we, uh, the weak, um, the way the strong uh, uh, bears the failings of the weak, uh, the way both strong and weak are united in worship, 
uh, with a common goal of worship. Um, the way um, chapter 15 verses 1 to 13 lives it, uh, its experience in a church um, is something that people from the outside just won't get to see because they are stuck in their own bubbles. All right, so, we, so the church, um, if, if we take Paul's advice right and we, and, and we focus on these things, um, the church community itself, when it is united, will be a powerful source, uh, a powerful force in uh, missions, a powerful force in evangelizing. So we really have no time to disagree over every disputable matter, uh, you know, programs, servant, sermons, uh, level of cultural engagement. Uh, you know, they're all things that sincere Christians will disagree on. Um, but, but, at the, but at the end of the day, right, at the back of my mind, we need to be united in the worship of God. It'd be difficult for um, the church to be a place where others can step in to see the gospel in action if we are divided um, over every small matter. So a friend of mine, um, I remember, uh, came to Christ uh, through his participation in the church community. Um, I remember the first time he visited um, a cell group I was um, attending and, and he asked a lot of great questions about uh, Christianity. Uh, but, you know, not all of them were charitable. Uh, he asked a lot of, uh, there's a lot of cynicism like, in the way he, he posed some of these questions. Um, but, uh, you know, people in the cell group attempted to reach out to him by including him in some of our activities and the person continued joining church. Uh, and what's interesting was he started to see the gospel lived out um, from the inside, right? Instead of observing a church from the outside, uh, he was actually looking at it from ground zero and understanding what gospel uh, life looks like in a church community. Um, and over time, he actually uh, heard the gospel, believed and was saved. Um, and I think that was roughly around the time when I started becoming more and more convinced about the evangelistic prospects of a church community um, that is united in wanting to show what the gospel looks like to everyone. So in um, its mission months and, and, and as in, in, in Subang is mission month and, and as you will also see in the uh, following uh, uh, sermons, uh, the theme of missions, um, as we think about this global nature of the gospel, um, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that um, God will send all sorts of different people our way um, if you desire to preach the gospel far and wide. Some may ask uh, harsh questions and others, um, even after being saved, may question the way we do certain things because of their upbringing or previous religious experience. But we, we have been called to love these people um, and a welcoming, uh, missional-minded culture can only take root uh, when those who are strong in faith are prepared to bear the failings of the brothers and sisters who are weaker in their faith um, for the sake of love, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. So throughout this week uh, or in the following months, if someone you know, comes up to you and tells you that what you're doing doesn't sound right to him or her, uh, even though you're convinced, right, biblically that it's okay and you have a clear conscience, uh, you know what to do. Uh, don't despise that weaker brother or sister. Bear with his or her failings. Um, and by limiting your freedom, build up his or her in love, uh, build up his or her faith um, in love for the sake of the gospel. 
I remember the citizenship that we share in the kingdom that is a present reality. Um, I remember Christ, who, although he occupied the strongest, most exalted position, humbled himself to be a servant of the Jews, was obedient to death, even death on the cross. So um, I've come to the end of the sermon, but I must apologize because I realized I didn't read the text at the start. <laughs> uh, one of my, uh, my, my texts, my script was actually covering uh, one side of the screen. I would like to read uh, Romans 15, 1 to 13, if that's okay. I know it's a bit strange to uh, do this at the end, but I think it's important that we get a grasp of the text as it flows. Yeah? So apologies. Uh, yeah, I was a bit flustered earlier. <laughs> so Romans 15, 1 to 13. Um, let's all uh, read and uh, from what we've learned just now, maybe uh, see how this text applies to us in the coming week. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Fine in heaven, we uh, admit that it is difficult uh, for us to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, we are selfish and sinful, uh, and we always want to do things our way. And Lord, as we look at your uh, the reminder through your servant, uh, the Apostle Paul, Lord, we want to take this to heart because we understand that it has implications um, on the way we live our lives uh, as a community in the church, and that has an impact on how uh, we perceive uh, the needs uh, of overseas mission as well as um, local evangelizing. Um, and, and Lord, we just want to commit um, everyone to your hands as we uh, continue along this journey of life. There will be many times when we'll be struggling, there will be many times when uh, people might say stuff, they might say things that uh, hurt us, but Father, we just want to look to Christ. As our example, who, although he was the strongest, uh, most um, powerful king, um, he stepped down and he um, lowered his status in order to accomplish um, what you have promised um, in the past and that is to redeem 
um, a group of people for yourselves, Lord, an assembly of people for yourself. So we, we just want to look to Christ as our hope. We want to look to the kingdom that is coming and we want to pray that you give us this fresh uh, vision, uh, insight into how you want us to live uh, for you today. Just commit all these things to your hands to pray in Jesus' name.